Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon again today. Real excited to have in the studio one of the vascular surgery specialties, top physicians in the nation. And if not uh, beyond that, I might make him blush a little bit bragging about him, but he actually is one of the innovators who is changing the way that vascular surgeons help patients that are dealing with uh, peripheral vascular disease uh, throughout their body. And I'm really excited to have him here today. I've got Joseph Ricotta from the Northside Vascular Surgery Group. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a big problem as I started looking into uh, peripheral arterial disease and just how prevalent it really is. So Thanks for taking some time. I know you're a really busy fella. Got a couple of places where you're doing work with uh, patients in need. So making time to be here is much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Dr. Ricotta. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, CW. So as we were sitting around a little bit ahead of the show, um, we talked about the fact that as many as 10, 12 million people in the United States are dealing with PAD, as we call it for short. Um, talk about that. I mean, I didn't realize it was that prevalent. It's a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, about 10 to 12 million people in the U.S. have uh, what we call PAD or peripheral arterial disease, and that is um, essentially blockages in the arteries uh, in your legs uh, that could lead to <clears throat> not only symptoms of pain and um, difficulty walking, but also uh, severe symptoms, which would cause you to uh, have infections in your legs or even lead to amputation. So that's right. About 12 million people in the U.S. Uh, uh, have it. Uh, and about 2 million of these people have even the more severe extreme, what we call critical limb ischemia. Mm-hmm. Um, about one in three people with diabetes have PAD. So diabetes wow. is is one of the big risk factors for that. And, that. and that's one of the things that we've been paying some attention to as well, uh, kind of a, uh, ob- obesity being one of the components that kind of kicks into diabetes. Um, and then once you've got the complication of having diabetes for a number of years, it in and of itself does damage to our vascular system, kind of piles on, if you will, uh, starts making the uh, arteries in our body start getting a little sticky, a little more inflamed and a little more prone to having blockages build up. So it kind of accelerates the rate. If, am I on the right track? Yeah, that's correct. I think, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, and smoking are really the, the sort of the top risk factors for developing PAD. And I've seen some statistics that showed over the last couple of decades that we've made some strides. I mean, there was some big attention, obviously, on a fairly recent past where they kind of went after tobacco and got a lot of people to stop smoking. I know their rates of smoking have declined, and heart disease has made some improvements along with it, but it's still like killing one in three of us. And when we, you know, as, as a cause of death, from what I understand, about a third have to do with cardiovascular disease of some kind. So. Yeah, that's correct. And, and uh, you know, PAD is at, le- at least the severe form uh, has a pretty significant mortality. So left untreated, PAD can, you know, lead to gangrene and sores on the legs and amputations. And uh, the survival rate, you know, is, uh, is low in those patients. So at five years, about 70% of those patients will die in five years if it's left untreated. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a significant problem. And, you know, we touched on diabetes as a big component of it. It certainly puts you at greater risk for developing PAD, but it's not just diabetics that can develop heart and vascular disease. Am I right? You don't have to have diabetes. If you if you sit at home saying, I don't have diabetes, so I'm in the clear. I don't have to worry about it. And that's not, that's not true. Family history is a big thing there. Genetics is a big part of whether or not you'll develop the disease. Our own choices is too much. How, how much exercise we get, what, what we eat every day, the, all those things can certainly contribute. So it's not just uh, the folks come from the diabetic community that are developing peripheral arterial disease. And so if I'm if I'm a patient in the community and I'm I'm thinking about all right PAD we've talked about the fact that a lot of people have the problem I've not had any trouble yet my loved one hasn't had any trouble yet how do you how do you, you evaluate for it when should you think about it if I'm a person out there you know listening to this who either myself or you know my loved one has had a history in their in their family whatever it may be 
Yeah, so I think you're, you know, you're exactly right. Um, you know, one out of three diabetics will develop PAD, but just because you don't have diabetes doesn't mean that you won't get PAD. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the primary risk factors for PAD would be diabetes, as we mentioned, age over 50 years old, uh, history of smoking, history of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and then, you know, obesity and sedentary lifestyle. So those would be sort of the five or six highest risk factors for developing PAD. So in terms of trying to screen for these patients and, and recognize them early on as potential uh, developers of the disease process, um, you know, you have to identify people with those five or six risk factors. So, you know, any patient over the age of 50 that either smokes and then family history I didn't mention too, which, which you mentioned. So anybody over the age of 50 who either smokes, has a relative with diseased blood vessels, diseased arteries, has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or has diabetes, should get screened for PAD. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it's probably more prevalent than, than one might assume that, that not a lot of folks don't go to a primary care physician every year. When should they ideally start thinking about those types of things? I mean, at a minimum, getting a checkup by a primary care doctor, family practice, internal medicine, at least once a year so that they can do some of the blood work and the vital signs, different things like that, where they can catch the development of those risk factors that could put them on the path to PAD? Because a lot of people don't bother to go to a, if they feel fine, they don't go to a, get a checkup every year. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think, like I said, you know, once you hit age 50, you need to start thinking about that. Okay. And then particularly if you have any of these risk factors, so. blood pressure, cholesterol, family history, smoking, diabetes, obesity, uh, that's when you need to go to your family physician, primary care doctor, and, uh, you know, just have a basic physical exam. Let them feel for your, you know, the blood, the the pulses in your feet, make sure you have good pulses in your feet, maybe do some routine blood work. Um, most people with PAD will have um, abnormal, if, if they're asymptomatic, uh, may have some abnormal pulses. But okay. the other thing that you can develop is, is symptoms with this. So if you have some blockage in your arteries uh, and then there's not enough blood flow getting to your legs, you can develop you know, pain, for example, pain in your calves or your thighs, uh, cramping pain when you walk. Okay. And we call that claudication. So usually, you know, it's when you walk a certain distance, you develop this cramping, aching pain in either your calf muscles or your thighs, uh, sometimes in your hips. And uh, the, the sort of the typical story is you walk for a bit, you get the, the cramping pain, you sit down for a few minutes, it goes away, you walk uh, a little bit more and it comes back. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the typical story of what we call a, a claudicant or somebody who has a claudication. And claudication is is sort of the early stages of PAD, it's one of the first symptoms that you would get. Okay. Uh, so it's early on the, on the sort of less severe side of the spectrum. And then the other things that I mentioned uh, earlier with more on the severe side, on the other side of the spectrum would be, you know, sores and wounds on the legs mm-hmm. and gangrene and stuff like that's a mm-hmm. little bit more uh, advanced. I'm curious, uh, coming from a wound practice, uh, that's what, what we see. How many times do you see a person who determined or gets determined that they have peripheral vascular disease, PAD in the legs when the wound appears? They didn't really have, you know, someone tell them that before. I'm just kind of curious. Are they usually dealing with some pretty good symptoms before that happens? Or is that sometimes the time when person finally learns, oh, you've got blockage in your legs? Yeah. So I think the natural history uh, of PAD would be, you know, you'd start out with these symptoms of these cramping pains when you walk, and then <clears throat> you'd start to get the pains not only when you walk, but also at rest. We call it rest pain. So pain when you're lying in bed at night or when you're sitting, you know, watching TV at home uh, and your feet are up, you know, your blood, blood gravity is not taking blood, blood flow down to your foot. So you might get pain in your legs or your feet at rest. And then that would progress if left untreated to having some wounds or some sores or gangrene in your, in your feet. So presumably anybody who has an ulcer or wound in their foot that's from PAD uh, probably at some point along the road had this claudication symptoms, mm-hmm. these pain in the legs, either when they walked or at rest. And probably it was either you know ignored or... Uh, people thought it was just part of them getting older. And right. Maybe. I was going to ask about that. How many times do the do the patients m- m- kind of mistake claudication for, ah, I haven't 
walked in a long time. I'm just getting older, like you say, and just think it's muscle pain. Yeah, a lot. A lot of times people for a long time. you know, just chalk it up to arthritis or, or muscle pain, and um, uh, it, they, they think it's just a, a byproduct of them you know, getting old. I would imagine that's that's got to be quite a shock, too, when they find out that there's some blockage in there that they may have to get removed. We've been talking with Northside Vascular Surgeon Dr. Joseph Ricotta. We're, we're learning about peripheral arterial disease, and it's a big problem in the United States. And based on some of the things that we were talking about as we launched into this show, that there are certain things that we can do as a individual trying to resist its progression. We can make some changes in our life that actually slows the rate of how fast and how far it goes. Am I right? If I change my diet, if I try to lose some weight, not necessarily easy things, but there are some things that I can actually do that help you, the the surgeon taking care of me, do what you're trying to with me. Yeah, that's correct. I think, you know, and, and again, the first sort of line of treatment in patients who come to us with PAD would be to um, uh, risk factor modification to, to manage their risk factors. So the, you know, uh, the people that have diabetes, make sure they have good blood blood sugar control, people with high blood pressure, make sure their blood pressure is controlled, cholesterol, make sure their cholesterol is controlled, smoking, try to make them stop smoking, that's a big thing, Mm -hmm. and that's hard to do in lots of patients. Uh, Obesity, exercise, and lose weight. So those are sort of the first-line treatments for PAD is is basically a modification of those five, six, seven risk factors that make it, uh, you know, uh, increased likelihood of developing PAD. I would say that of those risk factors, you know, high blood pressure, smoking, diabetes, cholesterol, those are more closely associated with PAD than they are with heart disease. So oh. more people will develop PAD with those risk factors than will develop heart disease. Not a lot of people know I that. certainly didn't. I've been in the field for a little while. I didn't realize that. I'm always thinking of you know cardiovascular or, or, or heart disease coming uh, being the thing that uh, is the real big focus, but I didn't realize that you could actually have... Uh, almost a greater rate, if you will, of, of extremity problems versus the heart. Um, it, one of the things that we talked about as we were kind of getting prepared for the show was the fact that early diagnosis is an important piece of dealing with peripheral arterial disease. And that's one of the places where we find in, in our medical community that we have some opportunities for, for improvement, changing the way um, that we think about it from the perspective of when is it necessary, probably more often than not. Uh, we're, we're, we're if, for example, if I'm dealing with a wound on a patient, for example, from the perspective of podiatry, um, from, your, from your advice as a vascular surgeon who would be dealing with someone who's operating on, say, a diabetic with an ulcer, what would your advice be as, as it relates to this patient needs this kind of study? This is what I would recommend that you think about uh, to evaluate that patient's vascular status to find out is there something going on there that A, would be contributing to a wound being on their foot and B, that would obviously give you a greater chance of fixing it early. Yeah, so I think with um, with PAD in general, let's say the early stages of PAD, uh, simple tests, just like I said, a physical exam where you you know feel the, for the pulses in the patient's foot and we have some sort of simple what we call non-invasive testing uh, that we can do in the office-based setting as an outpatient where we measure the pressure of the blood flow into the foot or we do a, an ultrasound similar to when, you know, pregnant women have an ultrasound right. of, their, of, of their bellies. We can do an ultrasound of the legs, look inside the blood vessels and see if there's any plaque there or blockage there. So I think those are very simple, um, easy, non-invasive um, outpatient tests that can be done uh, in the early stages of PAD to identify and screen for these patients who have these risk factors. Once a patient has developed and progressed to what we would call, you know, critical limb ischemia or with wounds and ulcers on their foot, so the more severe stage of PAD, obviously, uh, you know, the risk of complications and, as I said, mortality goes up. And, you know, one thing I didn't mention is that, uh, again, somebody with a wound or an ulcer has about a 70% mortality in five years, which is about twice as high as stroke breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and heart disease. So, uh, you know, it's a significant a significant problem. Um, for those patients, uh, and the, the other thing is about 50, 50 to 60% of those patients in a year will end up with an amputation of their, at least one of their limbs. Uh, and once you have one limb amputated, uh, the chance of having the second limb amputated within a year to two years is probably about 50%. 
And again, the mortality, uh, every time you do something like an amputation, right. the mortality goes up. So um, unfortunately, what happens a lot of times with amputations is that about 50, you know, and this is a, st- a statistic from the um, American Diabetes website, but about 50% of patients who have an ulcer or wound in their leg and get an amputation never had their an angiogram or an ultrasound or their blood vessels investigated, which is is simply ama- amazing to me. Um, so if somebody comes to my office with an ulcer in their foot, the first thing I would do is to do one of these non-invasive tests, an ultrasound, a pressure test, to see what the to get an idea of what the blood flow uh, is to their foot. Uh, if that's abnormal, then I would usually do a, a minimally invasive procedure called an angiogram. Okay. Uh, and many people are familiar with a cardiac catheterization. It's similar to that, where we make a little needle stick in the groin, and, but we instead of going up to the heart, we go down to the legs and look and see if there's any blockages there. And if there are, I would say about 90 to 95% of the time, uh, I can fix that. We can fix that with uh, balloons and stents and things and avoid a big surgical bypass or a big surgery uh, surgical operation. Um, but the key is that these patients come and they're told they need amputations uh, with that, and they've never had their arteries studied and their blood vessels checked. It's it's amazing. And and those are some key points that for our listeners who either have somebody that they know, friend or family that has had some vascular disease, whether it's heart related, whether it's blood pressure related, whatever it may be, but it, dealing with our vascular system, uh, make sure that they understand that that. PAD here, the peripheral arterial disease, it's very serious. I don't think that very many people, even when they understand that, oh, I've got some PAD, a doctor told me I have PAD, I don't think that very many people realize how deadly it can be and and, and really how near that horizon becomes, uh, particularly if it's unchecked. Um, so I, I think it's important for patients to understand that, that if they have PAD, it's very serious, um, and we gotta we got to tackle it aggressively and early. Yeah, and I, I think, like I said, you know, the mortality at five years is 70%, uh, which is twice that of heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Um, I don't want to throw too much science out there, but there was a, there, there was a study of about 3,000 patients that was done, and it looked at patients' awareness of different disease states. And PAD was the one that was the, they were aware of the least. Only about 25% of patients surveyed were aware of what PAD was, and it was less than you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, multiple sclerosis, coronary artery disease, stroke, cancer. So even though you have this disease process that has a twofold higher mortality than stroke, heart disease, and cancer, um, not very many people are aware of it. Mm-hmm. And as it relates to our providers, clearly you, you talked about the fact that if you're a foot and ankle surgeon and you're dealing with a person who comes in with uh, some risk factors for uh, vascular disease like diabetes or obesity, whatever those may be that they're bringing with them as comorbidities. But if someone comes in with a wound on their foot, one of the things we need to be thinking about, particularly if it's been there for a couple of weeks plus, is what's the vascular status? Almost, I mean, is there anybody in that, in that picture, um, say, that's over 35 that comes with a chronic wound. It's it's been on my leg or on my foot for two weeks plus three weeks now. I've been I've been messing with this and still here. hadn't hadn't it should who who should get? Do you have kind of a, an algorithm, if you will, to for, from a provider's perspective? Um, obviously, when they have a wound on their foot, we need to evaluate for a vascular status. We've got that established. But from a primary care physician side too, when should you be recommending it, even in the absence of? any kind of symptoms that are really causing a quality of life issue for the patient. So we can ha- make sure that our surgeons who are listening, our primary care docs who are listening, can maybe maybe they need to rethink the algorithm, at which point they get your team involved for one of those uh, non-invasive studies. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> there are some other causes of wounds and ulcers in the, in the feet. You know, neuropathic ulcers can happen, so people who have, uh, you know, neuropathy or nerve-related problems, uh, nerve-related diseases could get... Uh, ulcers on their feet. Um, however, I, I believe strongly that anybody with a wound on their foot needs to have a vascular investigation to rule out whether it's an artery or a vein. Uh, it could be a vein uh, problem. And uh, lots of times, you know, we can tell what it is by the, you know by the location. So if it's an artery 
ulcer. It's usually on the top of the foot or on the lateral side of the foot. If it's a vein ulcer, it can be uh, on the medial side, the inside of the foot. Uh, and sometimes if it's a nerve ulcer, it's on the, on the bottom or the sole of the foot. Uh, but that's not a, you know, a hundred percent, you know, um, sort of strict rule. So my, my answer to that question would be that, uh, you know, anybody that has a wound that's taken, you know, a while, two, three weeks plus to, to heal up, uh, needs to have a vascular, uh, study looking at both the arteries and the veins, because sometimes the arteries are okay, but it's the veins that Mm -hmm. are the problem. And And you can fix those just the same. And we fix the veins Mm -hmm. uh, also, but, but I think a lot of people miss that because they, they say, okay, the arteries are okay, but they don't look at the veins, uh, but the veins can cause problems. So, you know, the arteries take the blood from the heart to the feet and the veins take the blood from the feet to the heart. And they're all connected in a, in a circuit, in a cycle. And um, if, the, if, if you don't have enough blood flow going from the heart down to the foot, you're not, you're gonna, you can get a wound. But by the same token, if the blood's not going back from the foot to the heart uh, very efficiently, you can get pooling of blood down there in the leg, and it can cause breakdown of, of the skin and cause an ulcer. So I think both the arteries and the veins need to be investigated. If that comes back negative, then you need to look at some of the you know, more unusual causes like nerves or you know, pressure ulcers or something like that. Northside vascular surgeon Joseph Ricotta is sharing some great information with us about how do we find peripheral arterial disease and then what do we do about it uh, once we've uh, determined that that's a part of the problem that we're facing. And we've been sharing some information as far as what our partners in the community need to be thinking about, either from a primary care perspective or foot and ankle surgery. We know both of those um, specialists end up seeing a lot of the patients that, that they kind of end up being the front lines in a, in a, in a way. Uh, for identifying peripheral arterial disease. So we're just trying to help our colleagues understand that it's something we need to be on the lookout for fairly aggressively. And and one of the things I was going to ask you about, I had read some studies about uh, the value of pulses as it relates to saying someone has or does not have peripheral arterial disease, and they can be a little bit uh, unreliable with regards to giving you a sense that, oh, they're, they're, they're good to go. I felt a pulse. We're fine. Now, how often do you see a patient does have a pulse that's not maybe bounding and fantastic, but it's not terrible either, but then they have reconstructable disease that you end up going and doing an intervention on? That happens. Uh, so just because the patient has a pulse, again, sort of my, my, my adage is if, if any patient that has a wound deserves a vascular study, meaning some sort of uh, either a non-invasive you know, ultrasound or an angiogram. Um, and just because that you may feel a pulse, uh, doesn't mean that there's not, uh, that there's not, there's varying degrees of mm-hmm. pulses, you know, there's sort of graded between, you know, one to four sort of mild, moderate, severe. Uh, and just because they have a pulse doesn't mean that they don't have disease. Uh, the other thing is that the pulse exam is very var- variable. And, <laughs> yes, uh, from user to user. And, uh, is, 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 uh, user dependent. And, um, you know, some people think they're feeling a pulse, but they're actually feeling their own pulse in their fingers and they're not feeling the patient's uh, actual pulse in his foot. So I think it's, you know, it's it's an okay screening tool, but... Uh, and it's useful in people that don't have any wounds. Right. Uh, But if somebody has a wound and you say they have a palpable pulse, it's probably unlikely that it's a totally normally normal pulse, uh, and they need some other more uh, um, definitive uh, sort of... uh, uh, you know, um, a more definitive diagnostic test, basically. That's right. And so we could achieve that with one of the tests that you talked about, whether it's the ankle, ankle break yield um, test or one of those non-invasives, at least to get an uh, initial look and then go from there. Um, and we know that the literature st- states very clearly that time is of the essence. So if you're a patient, you got a wound or your loved one has a wound, they're being followed by somebody and the clock is ticking and we've not done a vascular study, be asking about it. If you're a provider and you're dealing with a patient with a wound, pulses or not, the wound's not getting better, rule it out. And that that's way right. we can re- eliminate the patient who goes on to an amputation because that's, a, that's what is the end of the road for the patient. It's not a treatment option. And I, I think that's one of the things we have to change is the perception that it's a treatment option. Let the patient get on with their life. Well, the life will be 
statistically short, if we let them, you know, go on to amputation, it's a failure of our treatment. So here in the community, we have access to resources like yourself, and we'll talk real quickly um, before we have to let you go about some of the things that you can do for a patient once they are determined to have disease. But, um, you know, b- being able to get after it uh, very quickly um, is is one of the things that both our patients out there asking about what's next, what's next. We need to be asking why it's not healing. And if vascular status hasn't been taken care of, clearly need to be asking your doctor and and all but demanding uh, that you go to see one. And let's talk about that a little bit because uh, as I was learning about your background, I, I was – I already knew that you had a great reputation as a vascular surgeon in the community. Our doctors all uh, say you know, great things about you. But what I didn't realize is that you're one of the innovators in the vascular surgery specialty in terms of uh, how you do some endovascular procedures like you talked about where you're able to go in and fix some uh, diseases um, and injuries by going through the arteries themselves and, and doing that without being cut wide open, that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about some of the cool things? Because on top of your skill set where people, physicians out there in the community are coming to you to be taught how to do this, um, you also have at your disposal at Northside some equipment that makes it that much better to get your care here. So talk about some of the things that are going to happen for you once we determine that you actually do have vascular disease and now we're going to fix it. Yeah, so I think, you know, if a patient comes and they have a PAD or a wound or something and you do the testing and you figure they have blockages in their arteries, uh, then we need to get the, get rid of that blockage. We need to fix that blockage so that they get a better blood flow to their leg and either their pain goes away or their wounds heal uh, and we save their leg so that uh, they don't need an amputation. We've had quite uh, a good success rate at Northside in, uh, in saving people's limbs. Um, uh, and, you know... 10, 15 years ago, most of these procedures were done with uh, big open surgical bypasses where, you know, the whole leg is filleted open and you're doing a bypass from the groin down to the lower leg and, and it's a big operation. Patients stay in the hospital for seven, s- several days and uh, significant morbidity associated with that operation. Over the last 10 or 15 years, we've developed more minimally invasive approaches where, as I said, you can do things in, uh, with just little needle sticks in the groin and you can fix the blockage Instead of doing a bypass around the blockage, you can fix the blockage from the inside mm. uh, with stents or balloons or some of these new devices. And um, you know, I've spent a lot of my career uh, helping to develop some of these new technologies and new minimally invasive, en- what we call endovascular, inside the blood vessel uh, procedures. Uh, and we have several of those uh, available to us at Northside. You know, there's there's uh, new technologies where we now have balloons that we can uh, blow up in, in arteries and, and sort of open up plaque or open up blockages. And the balloons are, 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 are medicated. They have a coating of uh, a special medicine on it that prevents the plaque from coming back or the, or the blood vessel from scarring in. And uh, we did the first ever what we call drug-coated balloon, so the medication on the balloon. We did the first ever drug-coated balloon uh, implant in a patient uh, at Northside, uh, at the Northside Forsyth Hospital in Cumming. Uh, in October of 2014. That was the first one in Georgia. Uh, I think the second one in the southeastern United States. Uh, Some of the other things we do, uh, we have what's called an endovascular uh, robot. So much much like some of the other robotic surgery that's used now for uh, general surgery or or GYN surgery or urologic surgery, uh, where you can use a robot to manipulate instruments uh, inside the patient, we can use a robot to manipulate the catheters and stents and balloons and wires that we use to do the endovascular procedures. And, you know, there's only about 10 robots in the world right now, and uh, we have two of them at at Northside. (laughs) That's pretty strong. (laughs) uh, So, and and Northside has a strong, big uh, history, long history of of, uh, robotic surgical programs. So this is sort of uh, a new addition to the the Northside armamentarium uh, on the vascular side. And we did the first ever robotic endovascular case in the southeast United States in uh, early October of 2014 as well. And since then, we've done about uh, 40 or 50 cases. But what the robot gives you is <clears throat> uh, the really complicated procedures where uh, it's hard to get through the blockage or it's hard to navigate the, 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 the wires and the catheters and the stents and mm-hmm. such through difficult anatomy, whether it's very tortuous and and, and, and hard angled anatomy to get through or whether the blockages are very 
uh, calcified and hard to get through that you can't, can't get through manually, the robot enables us to have a lot more precision and control of things. And we can get through these blockages and navigate through the complex, difficult anatomy with the robot. I actually had a patient, the first patient we did in, in October, uh, first patient in the southeast, uh, I tried about six weeks or eight weeks before to get through his blockage just the sort of the old-fashioned way, just using, right. using my hands, uh, with mo moving the catheters with my hands as opposed to the robot. And uh, I got through about 90% of the blockage, but I couldn't get through that last 10%. So I brought him back once we had the robot installed, and we used the robot, and I got right through it in about eight, nine minutes uh, pretty quickly and, and was awesome. able to fix it and, and open it up and heal his, heal his ulcer and, and ultimately save his leg. So... Some of these new technologies uh, we have, we have a pretty robust clinical research program at Northside. Uh, we have several clinical trials that not only involve PAD, but other aspects of vascular surgery like carotid disease and aortic disease and venous disease. And uh, many of these trials, including the drug-coated balloon trial I mentioned, you know, we're the only hospital in the state of Georgia that has uh, access to these trials. And so if patients want the new devices, they need to sort of come to us at Northside to, That's cool. to be enrolled in these trials. And we'll so, have to have you back so we can talk some about some of the studies that you have going on. That yeah. way, if, if there's somebody out there that might be able to get enrolled as a patient to, to, to be a part of that, that would be great if we can help you do that. Yeah, no, we have lots of them and, and sort of add more every month, it seems like. so. I'd like to have you come back because if you're doing things the right way, and I know that you support this based on what we talked about uh, before, was pulling together the multi-specialty team, if you will, and, and tackling it that way rather than I'm a specialist, I've got it, I've got great skills, I can do wound care and I can do surgery, so I don't need to send this patient anywhere else. That's actually, in in most cases, I would say for a patient with peripheral arterial disease, probably not the best approach. You're probably going to be missing something that could be addressed by one of your partners in the community. So I'd love to come back, talk about how that would look and how it would benefit our patients and benefit the physicians who are taking part in that as well. So we've got a lot of things to talk uh, about with Dr. Joseph Ricotta from the Northside Vascular Surgery Department. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your day. I know you've got surgeries and things like that going on throughout the course of the day. So for you to be able to make time and join us in the studio, uh, I'm very appreciative of that. I'm happy to be here, CW. Thanks for the invitation. I do think that... Uh uh, a multidisciplinary approach is important, as you said, and, and having uh, people from sort of uh, all facets of the medical profession that take care of these patients collaborate and cooperate uh, with, the, with, the, with the ultimate goal of saving the patient's limb, healing the patient, treating their symptoms, and ultimately saving their life. Uh, is going to be the key, and and so I'm happy. I'd be happy to come back yeah, and talk look, to you about what we've done at Northside to help help uh, navigate that. I look forward to that, and obviously, as a as a function of all of that, when the patients are getting better, how much cost is saved from our health system, you know, uh, nationally and even internationally, if we're treating patients like this. Um, I'm I'm happy to to catch up with one of the other specialists that would be a part of a. A multi-specialty team that's trying to save people's limbs. So here in a minute, I'm going to catch up with uh, Dr. Mike Bednar, a podiatrist that we've worked with over time. Um, but uh, thanks again to Dr. Joseph Ricotta uh, of the Northside Vascular Team. Um, if you have questions, make sure you tweet them to us at uh, Top Docs on BRX. Um, we link up with uh, Northside and all of our other guests so that you can also see information that they're putting out. But if you have a question um, for Dr. Ricotta that uh, relates to uh, peripheral vascular disease of some kind, tweet them to us or send them to us on Facebook on Top Docs on BRX. I'll be happy to follow up with you after the fact and uh, get answers back to you straight from the doctor's mouth. So, Krista, I think we have Dr. Mike Bednars on the line right now. You there, Mike? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad to have you join us, and uh, we're going to continue on our conversation we've been having about uh, PAD, or peripheral arterial disease, as a foot and ankle surgeon that we've worked with for quite a while now, since I've been a part of the practice, actually, from our wound program. I know that uh, as a surgeon, you're somebody that includes... Um, a good amount of folks that have some sort of vascular disease, whether it was kind of initiated by diabetes or just uh, pure uh, vascular damage over time. I know that you face a lot of complicated wounds. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about that with uh, Northside vascular surgeon Joseph Ricotta, and uh, I thought you were kind of the perfect expert to get on the horn and talk a little bit about 
how you approach uh, these patients that have uh, limb-threatening wounds on their legs, because that's been one of the things that we talked about here in our discussion, is that the presence of a wound that's not healing on a, on a patient's lower extremity, particularly if they are comorbid with uh, cardiovascular uh, risk factors, uh, particularly with diabetes as part of their history, um, we know that there's some red flag waving. And as Dr. Ricotta discussed, um, as many as half or maybe even slightly more of the 200,000 amputations that occur each year due to diabetic wounds, as many as half of them never got a vascular study. And I know that's not how you practice, so I wanted to kind of get, get you on as a foot and ankle surgeon who does some specialty work with highly complex wound patients um, like this. So you, so you could share kind of your approach to this patient when they walk in your door. Um, give us an idea of some of the top things you want to identify uh, for these types of patients so that you can have the great outcomes that you typically have in our experience working with you. Uh, I know we've seen you save uh, many people that had some pretty serious wounds when you got a hold of them. So uh, thanks for taking some time and, uh, and, and tell me about that. Before we get started, um, I know your practice is up in uh, Woodstock at Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia there. Uh, nice office up there, easy to get to. Um, take me through your your background. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are, you know, just as a foot surgeon. I know you've, you know, done quite a bit of extensive training and, and all that. So tell me your story a little bit, and then we'll talk some PAD. Oh, no problem. My training was down in Miami, Florida, and it was a three-year reconstructive foot and ankle residency. And we did have a fairly large diabetic population in that area. And it was mandatory for all of us residents to spend at least four to six months minimum with the, the dedicated wound care facility at that institution. Oh, that's so awesome. That kind of got me into the limb salvage and the, uh, the advanced uh, skin grafting techniques and uh, essentially the, the surgical aspect of looking at diabetic foot in order to treat these conditions. Um, down in Miami is... We also spent, well, I did personally spend two months with the vascular surgeon taking call with them. So I okay. saw numerous amounts of cold leg and uh, PVD issues related and non-related to diabetes. So it was uh, it was a good learning experience, and it, it greatly uh, helped me in order to see these patients and be very quick in assessing them and getting them to the proper doctors or surgeons to try to save their limbs. So as a surgeon who clearly, and I know that uh, as we, uh, the physicians in our practice, as you know, are wound specialists, so we do a lot of wound care, obviously, too. But um, I know there many of the surgeons that we interface with over time do much of the wound care itself, the debridements and different things like that. You talked about the dermal substitutes or skin substitutes, if you will. Um, so I know you do a lot of that work. Um, one of the things I see in the community is for surgeons or physicians, if they're not a surgeon, maybe, I know infectious disease sometimes will, will care for patients with a wound and deliver that kind of wound care in their office. Uh, one of the things that we see is is many times the specialists are resistant to send the patient out to another service. But based on what you're saying, and of course, based on what we know about the evidence, a multi-specialty approach tends to be necessary to achieve the best outcome, the quickest. And it sounds like that's exactly what your approach was. You were working with, as you say, vascular surgeons like Dr. Ricotta here um, and others that you were interfacing with and, and being a part of it, but not necessarily the only person working on the patient, right? Correct. Correct. The only way to, to, to be extremely accurate in diagnosing these patients is to have all hands on deck. Uh, I think it's... Uh, I, I see this all the time in my office when these patients are sent from um, their general practitioner for what the general practitioner considers a, a, a very simple diabetic wound that's been present for three months without signs of healing. And discussing with these patients who have they have seen in the past, almost all of the time they've never even visited a vascular surgeon's office mm -hmm. to have their blood flow assessed. So that would be the first thing that I, I address. And that's one of the first things I ask of all my patients, who is your vascular surgeon? When is the last time you have seen that doctor? And if they do not have a vascular surgeon, I'm on the phone that day getting them an appointment to get set up. I got you. And the reason being is 
even if these patients have palpable pulses and they have a triphasic Doppler, I've had patients in the past that presented with really no clinical signs of blockage. I've still sent them to the vascular surgeon to be assessed, and we have found blockages in their femoral arteries that would have went otherwise undetected. And, you know, two years down the road, it could have clotted off that femoral artery. And then next thing you know, they're even without an ulceration, they're resulting in a DK or an AKA <laughs> if the um, arterial flow can't be reestablished. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because we were just talking about it before we got on the phone with you. Dr. Ricotta and I were talking about the fact that many clinicians, particularly in the case that you described, where maybe there's not a significant amount of skin change noticeable just yet, uh, maybe there's not a significant amount of coolness just yet, um, and yet uh, they still have what you would call an okay pulse, one that would make you potentially feel like, ah, they're, they're doing okay, they've got good flow, I've got a good pulse feeling down here. So um, you're, you're talking about the fact that you've actually, in some instances, identified you were the, you were the place where uh, the patient learned that they had you know, vascular disease that was going to require some sort of intervention, whether it was an endovascular procedure or even a bypass. Correct. Um, and in that case, just, you know, go on through that a little bit. In, in a case like that, when, you, when you've got a patient, they come with a wound, um, one of the first things that you talk about that you want to know is do they have good flow? How does that work for you as, from an algorithm or timing perspective? What do you do then? I assume that one of the first things you've got to do is you've got to get the flow going again, get them opened up before. Correct. Does it kind of put on the brakes a little bit and, and will resume more of the kind of the heavy lifting of, of, of addressing this wound after we get you revascularized? Um, every, every patient is different. Yeah. Um, in, in the case of infection, obviously you want to control the infection. Sure. Even if they have severe PVD. So in that instance, I will call the vascular surgeon, have a scan done immediately, either place them on antibiotics myself or have them see infectious disease gotcha. to get them placed on IVs if needed. And the vascular surgeon will typically, if there is a blockage, go ahead and clean out the blockage the best they can. And then within a week, I'll do whatever surgery necessary to clean out infection. Okay. In the case of a, a wound that does not have infection, but the patient does have significant PVD, then the first thing that needs to be done is the blood flow needs to be reestablished. And then we can work on the other procedures to get um skin substitute to close the wound, offloading. But uh, like I said earlier, the, the, the peripheral vascular disease, there is a very small window where you can actually reverse that. And yeah. if you miss that window, that patient's going to end up with an amputation. Yeah, and like we talked about with Dr. Ricotta, um, that comes with it um, some very significant mortality rates within a year to five years. So clearly, I don't think very many patients actually realize that they're at such grave risk. And honestly, I'm not sure that all of our, our, our providers out there in the community are quite aware uh, of the extensive risk for uh, a higher rate of mortality for, for these patients if they go on to an amputation too. I think that there's a number of folks out there that actually think of an amputation, particularly minor amputation, as a treatment option rather than a treatment failure. Um, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have someone like yourself join us on the show today because um, we know that that's how you look at it, that amputation is a treatment failure, and you work uh, rapidly and aggressively to prevent that uh, on every level. Um, talk about, you, you talked about uh, the your, your vascular session. We talked about um, infection. Are, are there other top priorities for a patient that you want to identify and get under control quickly when they come through the door presenting with a wound like this where vascular disease may be a problem? Um, the, the other things I look at are biomechanically, I'll look at the patient and the type of foot that they have to make sure they don't have any prominent bone causing the wound. And if it's a plantar wound, then obviously we need to address the, the weight-bearing status. Um, Another thing that's extremely important, especially from a surgical standpoint that will predict your level of uh, success in healing, is calling the endocrinologist or the primary care and getting the patient's last hemoglobin A1C. Oh, okay. Because there are numerous studies out there that show that if a patient has an A1C that, that indicates his blood sugar is on average over 200 then we have a significant problem because the immune system at that level 
essentially stops working. So in that instance, um, it was last week I had a guy come into my office and he was sick. He had gas green of his foot. His blood sugar was over 600. Wow. And his white cell count when he reported to the emergency room was only 12 point seven, uh, 12,700, which is only 2,700 over yeah. the normal. Wow. And the, the PA at the ER told me that this guy wasn't sick that <laughs> he didn't need to be admitted. But in that instance, what happens is because the immune system is, is in the dark and is not working, of course, you're not going to have a white cell response. So that guy, after I talked to the, uh, the attending, he was admitted. He had uh, he had a foot amputation. He was forty six years old. Man, never checked his blood sugar, but now we got him on insulin pump, and he's he's actually doing better. But the, unfortunately, that's something that we see all the time. And he was one of those cases where I don't believe his uh, general practitioner was really taking his diabetes as severe as it was, because a lot of these patients are in a huge state of denial. Yeah, and they'll lie to their GPs and tell them they're doing well when the opposite is true. Well, that's pretty impressive. And and, and it, it's interesting to hear you kind of describe your process as you interface with these patients. It really mirrors the, the way the, the doctors in our practice go about it too. And that is interfacing with endocrinology, uh, interfacing with course infectious disease. That's less surprising, but it's it's cool to hear that you talk about the fact that you're talking to either primary care and or endocrine to discuss the patient's um, glucose levels in the case of the diabetic, because as you describe, it can certainly be a big uh, confounding factor as to whether or not something proceeds on to heal or not. Um, and then, of course, going back to the discussion about the, the vascular status, when you get someone revascularized, there's a whole lot less chance that when you go in and you do your fantastic surgery, that it'll actually close and heal like you want it to, rather than you do a great surgery, you take care of things that you needed to in surgery without any problems, but all of a sudden now the wound is not healing after surgery and, and we're having to do more more surgery or Correct. even greater amputation. So we've seen that numerous times in our occasion uh, in our practice where we have uh, a patient come in with some sort of, say, a ray amputation or a, or a transmet amputation, um, but uh, they, they don't heal because they, the, the vascular status was compromised. Um, you know, clearly we don't run into that with, uh, with your folks. <laughs> Yeah, and you know the other thing I want to point out too is um, the the microvascular status on these diabetics is typically terrible, especially the diabetics that end up with a wound. Because most diabetics, unless they had trauma, end up with a wound because they are not taking care of their blood sugar regimen. And I've had many patients again with palpable pedal pulses, vascular testing with ABIs was fine, but we'll send them to get a TCOM and they have no flow to the skin because those vessels are calcified, they clot, and they don't heal. And that will be, that's one of the things that I think of when I see a plantar wound. If it's not pressured, then the skin must be very poorly perfused for it not to be able to withstand pressure and shear force for it just to ulcerate. So I definitely want to, to point out that if, if a, and I try to tell us uh, all the surgeons and all the other docs I know, you if you have a wound, the other thing to do is to get a, a transcutaneous oxygen measurement okay. to assess the skin perfusion as well. Yeah. And how often, I'm curious, if, if you have just kind of a, if you had to kind of take a, a gut guesstimate on how long typically a patient has had a wound, say they're coming to you from uh, primary care or some other resource, how long do you typically think a wound has been present before it finally gets to you? It all depends. A lot of it depends on um, the patient procrastinating getting into the office or the primary care doctor trying to treat it. Sometimes it will go to a wound center and they'll they'll take a stab at it for two to four weeks. So it depends on where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, the, the doctors around my office up in Woodstock, they will call me day of when they see something that, that concerns them. And I get those very, very quickly. But um at the hospital, it's a little bit different. Sometimes the vascular guys will go ahead and revascularize the patient, control the infection, do what they need to do. But when they don't see the results they're expecting, then they'll send them. So well, well, at least it's, there's it, stuff it, there's really a, not a hard number I could place on sure, that. Sure, sure. 
if, if you know, before I let you go, do you have some advice uh, for the, you know, if, if you're a primary care physician out there or some other, say you're a foot and ankle surgeon, but you don't really, as part of your practice, you focus on like focus on sports injuries and other types of foot problems and, and dealing with um, limb threatening ulcers, for example, isn't a part of your practice. Um, what's the best advice you have in, in terms of timing, um, in terms of uh, involving someone like yourself and, and any other advice that you would have that might help our providers in the community kind of better understand what to do with these patients when they're seeing them so that we can, along the way, like you've talked about, you've clearly inter- interacted with the doctors around you who would be encountering these patients at first and gotten them kind of clued into this is how we need to think about it. But what advice would you have for that primary care doctor out there or, or maybe a foot and ankle surgeon, whoever they they may be when they face these patients how to how to go about it i would look at it and get this person to the to the appropriate physician the day of that i see them if you're a, a gp or even a, a foot and ankle guy and your practice is not focused around wound care or you didn't train to deal with wound care you're not going to learn it overnight it is there is a lot of uh i guess you call it feel and intuition that goes in with these patients. So I would recommend getting getting them to a, a provider that sees this type of patient all the time. The other thing that I tell all my diabetic patients and all my primary care docs around me is that they need to see a vascular surgeon, even if they don't have any rest pain or intermittent claudication, at least once a year for non-invasive testing, such as ABIs and PBRs. And that once-a-year test, I've caught a lot of uh, pre-clots or 50% clots that were easily remedied with a, a outpatient procedure versus them becoming 100% and a patient losing the leg. That's awesome. Well, we're going to have to have you come back on sometime to talk other things. Uh, I know you do a variety of uh, foot and ankle care. Um, definitely, I, I can easily say you're somebody I would send my family to, having had my wife and mother-in-law both, both go to your practice for surgery needs. <laughs> yes. So so I would happily endorse you as a foot and ankle surgeon. Tell people where they might link up with you, whether you're online or social media, so that if they want to look into you, they can do that. We, uh, we have a website. It's ankleandfootcenters.com. And when you click on the physician's tab, um, I'm, I think I'm the second guy on there because with the last name of Bednars and my office is in Woodstock. And you can also click on the link to the office. Okay. And I'll make sure that we're following you and linked up through social media as well so that if uh, folks uh, navigate to the show page, uh, they'll be able to find you through us as well. Thanks for making some time for us today, Mike. I really appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm glad to be able to introduce people to you um, because clearly if somebody has a wound or one of their loved ones has a wound that's uh, on their foot's not been healing well, they need to get to a surgeon who's going to approach it from a multi-specialty and an aggressive approach like you do. So I'm happy to help people learn about you and what you're doing. Um, thanks so much for contributing your expertise on today's discussion about peripheral arterial disease. And I look forward to uh, having you come back and uh, talking about other things foot and ankle. Sounds good. I appreciate it, Charlie. All right, man. That's Mike Bednars. If you haven't linked up with the uh, Top Docs Radio Show, make sure you do so on Facebook and Twitter. We're at uh, Top Docs on BRX on both Twitter and Facebook. If you have a question for our physicians or our guests over time and you weren't able to interact with us during the show, that's fine. Go ahead and send those those questions and we'll get them answered to you even after the fact. So make sure uh, you uh, join in the conversation and we'll get you the information that you need. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon again today. Uh, We'll talk to you all same time, same place next week.